Welcome to Fairfax, a podcast about what it was like to grow up in the Los Angeles of the early 1960s. It's a sort of audio memoir recorded by me and written by me. I'm Jeff Bushman. It's also a production of tjbsradio.com, where you can find other episodes of this podcast and several other podcasts you might not otherwise come across. Today, I'm a process server, a professional writer, a podcaster, and a few other things. But in the early 1960s, I was what a lot of people in L.A. were. I was a kid. Episode 2, The Stamp Lady, The Barber, and The Bookstore. As I was growing up, I discovered more and more about the area in which we lived. I didn't think it was all that unusual, and it probably wasn't. But there are a few things and people I remember really well even all these years later. For as long as I can remember, I've had an interest in business and making money. Even when I had no knowledge about what I would do in life, I was interested in how businesses succeeded or failed. When I was nine or 10 years old, this wasn't necessarily cute or clever, but it was peculiar. Right on Santa Monica Boulevard, there was a barber shop that was fairly large. If I recall, they had three or four active chairs and Every two weeks on Saturday, we'd go to the barber shop. I assume Stu was with us, but I know I went with our father. I know that for the adult haircut, it was twice the price it was for a kid under 12. Admittedly, this wasn't and isn't all that interesting or important by itself. But after a time, a new barber opened up a little shop of his own. Emmerich was either from Hungary or Poland, and he had two chairs in his shop. But for as long as we were there in the neighborhood, it was just him barbering. At some stage, I was probably 10, my parents allowed me to go get my haircut on my own. As a side note, I'm astounded that what we accepted as normal in those days would now be considered child abuse or neglect and result in the arrest of our parents. I, for example, traveled all over the city by myself at age 9, 10, and 11 by bus. I never had any negative consequence, but I can imagine how authorities would look at that today. So I started getting my haircuts at Emmerich's little shop. Why he was inclined to ask me, I have no idea, but he did ask me why I thought the bigger shop did so much more business and why he was doing a relatively small amount. I pointed out to him that he was charging the same price for adults and kids. I remember saying something about a man coming in with two young sons and that if they came to him, they would cost $7.50 while at the other shop, it would be $5. And if they didn't know he'd give a much better haircut, they were likely to go to the larger and therefore less expensive place. He changed his pricing structure and enjoyed an improvement in his business. Later, he put my picture on his cash register, I guess as a way of honoring me for giving him that advice. And when my cousin, who also lived in the neighborhood, walked by once and saw the picture on the cash register, He asked me, what the hell is the barber doing with your picture? (laughs) Another feature of what would now be called the hood was what I remember as a giant bookstore at Santa Monica Boulevard and Ogden Avenue. That's two blocks east of Fairfax. The reason that I say I remember it as a giant bookstore is because I'm aware of the tendency to remember something from childhood as much larger than it actually was. Many of us, for example, have gone back to old homes or apartments years after we've moved away 
and they seem tiny compared to what we remember them looking like. I know when I went back past the apartment building in Chicago where we had lived before we moved to Fairfax Avenue, it seemed much, much smaller than I remembered. I don't remember the name of the bookstore, but I think it was called Pacific something. That, of course, isn't literally true, but even if it was Pacific, I certainly don't recall the second and or third word in the store's name. Let's hope it was Pacific Books. And they sold books. That may seem obvious, but if you go into a lot of bookstores modernly, they sell books and magazines to the extent magazines still exist, and electronics and games and puzzles and sometimes CDs and DVDs. But Pacific, whatchamacallit, sold books. And they weren't new books. No. Pacific Ding Dong sold used books. And that makes it time to talk a bit about economics. Today, a new paperback book costs about 10 bucks, nine ninety five typically. I often buy used paperbacks at Goodwill for about $2.29. And that's after a recent price increase. New hardcovers run as much as $30 today. <clears throat> and the used variety, again at Goodwill, can be found for under $4. Okay, under by a penny or maybe 70 cents. When I was about nine or 10 years old, paperbacks were 35 cents and hardcovers were around $4.95. I'm pretty sure that just before I started reading paperbacks, they'd been increased to that price from 25 cents. I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure that's a 40% increase. Highway robbery. But as said, Pacific Wham Bam sold used books. I honestly don't remember the price, but I think what we now call a mass market paperback could be had for around a dime and trade paperbacks were probably about 20 cents. We didn't have a lot of money, but I spent a fair portion of mine, my allowance, at Pacific Wingding buying used books. And while I certainly don't recall most of the books I bought, some of what I bought were books on hypnosis. Yeah, I may have been the first, first 10 year old hypnotist in the world. Although I've never made use of it professionally, I actually became, about 30 years after that, a certified hypnotist. <clears throat> Lots of people I know say I'm certifiable in a number of other ways, but I am certified as a hypnotist. At Pacific, I bought books on hypnosis, including self-hypnosis, most of which were written by a guy named Melvin Powers. And this guy actually did know what he was talking about. And I think he made a fair amount of money, not from selling books in a used bookstore, but from his new book sales. He even created a publishing company to self-publish his books. It was called Wilshire Books, and that was named for a major and somewhat classy street that was in L.A., Wilshire Boulevard. Old Mel taught me how to make my hand numb using my mind so that I could put it down on a table and let my classmates hit my hand and I wouldn't feel any pain. That actually worked, but it didn't didn't really have too much practical application so far as I could see then. Later in junior high school, I would demonstrate this ability for my friends and it attracted some attention, but for some reason, none of it was from girls, but I digress. In those days, after reading some of those books, I practiced hypnosis on my friends, Steve and Mike, who were more than willing to be subjects. On one occasion, they came over to our apartment and one of Melvin Power's tricks was to get someone into a hypnotic state and then put something strong smelling under their nose while their eyes were closed and tell them it was some other smell. <clears throat> Steve was lying down on the couch 
and appeared to be under. The only strong-smelling substance in the apartment that I could think of was a jar of instant coffee. I put the coffee jar under his nose and told him it was very sweet-smelling French perfume. Now, what a bunch of preteens knew about French perfume was probably slightly less than nothing, but Steve was a good sport, and on my instructions, he took a deep sniff. Unfortunately, that made him sneeze, and the instant coffee inside the jar was ruined, and the powder was all over his face and on his shirt. As said, he was a good sport about it, and we all had a decent laugh, but it set my hypnosis career back several notches. But Pacific was an absolute paradise for a little geek like me. I still enjoyed trips to the library on my own and with Dad. But owning books seemed and still does like a special treat that on one level makes a person rich. People who are truly poor can't afford to buy books, of course, but if you can buy books and take as long as you want to read them and maybe give them away when you're done, that seems like a special kind of wealth. Though like now I enjoyed reading mystery novels, I also enjoyed what might be called humor books. In those days, they still had such things. We do now, but they're much fewer. In those days, we had used books from Robert Benchley, S.J. Perlman, H. Allen Smith, and, and James Thurber, among others. Today, we pretty much have David Sedaris. In between, there were Woody Allen and Steve Martin, and I'm probably missing someone. If you don't know those older authors, Robert Benchley wrote humorous essays and was also an actor in the 30s and 40s, often inserted into a film for comic relief. He was a funny man generally and was also the uncle of an author you may recall, Peter Benchley. He was the author of Jaws. Perlman, besides his books, also wrote a few of the Marx Brothers movies. And James Thurber, besides, running, besides writing funny magazine pieces, was also better known as a cartoonist. As a matter of fact, you may also remember a TV series from, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago called My World and Welcome to It. That was about James Thurber. And Pacific was my place to walk around and smell books and read introductions and buy a couple of books every week or so. What a blast. Another semi-regular stop for me was at the Stamp Ladies. We'll be right back with more of Fairfax, but first a brief word. The author of this podcast has also written books that you can find and obtain at Amazon.com. The latest about Life as a Process Server, including interesting and funny stories, is called You've Been Served. It's available as a paperback or audiobook at Amazon.com. And available as an ebook is The Mobile Millionaire, a guidebook to investing in mobile homes. Again, that's You've Been Served and The Mobile Millionaire, both available at Amazon.com. And now back to Fairfax. I don't really know if the tendency still exists among kids of a certain age, but it did when we were 9, 10, and maybe 11, to collect coins. In those days, we'd buy blue folders that had slots in them for specifically dated coins from different mints, and you'd find the coins, presumably from pocket change, and fill the books, or try to. So one would have, for example, a book of Roosevelt dimes from 1946 to 1961, and there would be three slots for each year because they were produced by three different mints, and which one the dime was minted at was reflected in a mark on the dime. So you weren't just looking for a 1947 10 cent piece, you were looking for the 1947 dime that was produced at each of the three mints, Denver, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. 
It was the same deal with each of the other coin denominations. We were especially eager when I was a kid to get Mercury dimes as they stopped making them after 1945 when the Roosevelt dimes replaced them and they were becoming rare in-change transactions. But you could still get them from time to time. Now, if you ever see a Mercury dime, it's a very rare find indeed. Part of the reason for that is all the Mercury dimes were silver or heavily silver. And a number of years ago, when silver became valuable, a bunch of people melted down the mercury dimes. While I did collect coins for a while, I became smitten by stamp collecting. I will confess that collect collecting stamps taught me a good deal about the world. If I said certain words to you that I learned from collecting stamps, most Americans wouldn't know what I was talking about. Any idea what Osterreich means? While I can't necessarily pronounce that word properly, I know it's what Austrians call their own country. Svetij is Sweden to us, and Suomi is what the Finns call what we call Finland. And that, of course, is just the start. In what I think was probably 1961, I discovered that just down Santa Monica Boulevard in walking or bike riding distance was a lady who lived behind her storefront. I don't even know if she had a name of a company in the window, but it said something clever like stamps. It had a few foreign stamps and a stamp album showing in the window display. If I ever knew her name, I certainly don't recall it now, and I always think of her as the stamp lady. On one level, she reminded me of my maternal grandmother because both of them used the same deodorant, and whenever I walked in, to either one of their presences, I could smell their ice blue secret. But unlike my grandmother, the stamp lady really knew about stamps. I was mostly interested in American stamps that were old, but she also got me interested in some foreign stamps. One of the series I remember collecting was from the country of Monaco. For those who don't know, Monaco is a really small country that has two principal industries and is surrounded by France. One is gambling in Monte Carlo, which is within Monaco, and the other one is, or was, producing stamps for collectors. The series I collected was that which celebrated the wedding of Prince Rainier, who, though a prince and not a king, was the ruler of the country, and the Meghan Markle of her day, American actress Grace Kelly. I also collected a lot of stamps from the United Kingdom and countries of the British Commonwealth. I think I did that because they were all in English, and I could read uh, what they said in English. Though I haven't spent time with my collection for a long time, I'm still a stamp collector. Unfortunately, I don't any longer have the collection I started and maintained with the help of the stamp lady. It was lost in one of my residential moves that I had as an adult, but for as long as I had it, it provided an enormous amount of pleasure. And speaking of pleasure, we hope you enjoy this edition of Fairfax. Please subscribe to it at tjbsradio.com or wherever fine podcasts and semi-fine podcasts are obtained. In the meantime, thanks for joining us, and please be kind to each other. And join us next time for the next episode of Fairfax. Good night, everybody.